HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15. Learn more at gardencult.com. This week on Meet and 3, we celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month with an episode about memory. I've always read and sort of approached cookbooks for more than the recipes. To me, they are full of narrative content and narrative value. So Malama Aina basically means to take care of the land. For us as Hawaiians, it's taking care of our older sibling. But I do remember like definitely feeling like self-conscious about it, like being the only one who kind of wasn't eating a sandwich and like didn't have a bag of goldfish or Lunchables. Listen to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Mike Schreiber. Welcome to The Shameless Chef, the show that takes us back in time to home kitchens in the 1970s, but still has a lot to teach us today. I developed this show with Michael Davenport in 1977. He was the original host of The Shameless Chef, and he shared his fearless attitudes towards food and encouraged home cooks to have fun and take some risks in the kitchen. I'm excited to keep this legacy alive and share The Shameless Chef with you on Heritage Radio Network. Today is all about fresh produce. Michael was thrilled whenever he found a roadside stand, and if you're anything like him and have gone overboard buying too many fruits and vegetables, here are some ideas for putting them to use. Now, here's a perfect example of Michael's ideas about certain foods that have become part of the mainstream today. At a recording session one morning, Michael brought in a bag of avocados. Before the recording session was about to begin, he handed each of us an avocado. In those days, unless you were frequenting the tropics, avocados were not something we were used to seeing at the grocer. He began to instruct us on how to determine if the avocado was properly ripe. The instructions were to use your fingers of your hands against the area below the base of the thumb of the same hand. So if you press your pinky against that part of the thumb, it's firm. And as you progress each finger to the thumb, it gets softer. So Michael told us this was the test for the ripeness of an avocado. In this case, he suggested that the perfect firmness of the avocado was between the pinky and the ring finger. 
He then proceeded to have us open it lengthwise, then use a knife to tap into the seed, twist it, then remove it. Then he brought out some salt, mayonnaise, and a couple of different spices, and I don't remember what they were. I think one was spicy like cayenne. And each of us got a spoon, and we were off on this new adventure. Nevertheless, it was my first taste of an avocado, and I was hooked. This is now a staple in my home. And ironically, a few years ago, I was watching some cooking show, and they were showing the exact same testing process on the hand, except this time it was for the perfect preparation of a steak. In this case, it was the middle finger for medium rare. It works. If you haven't tried it, you should. It's a beautiful day, probably in autumn. You're tweedling down a country road and you see the sign that reads Fresh Farm Produce. You slam on the brakes, you leap out of the car, already drooling with the idea of goodies to come. This is the shameless chef. I have been the protagonist in the above scene. And I have this to say, caveat emptor, buyer beware. There's something about going for a drive in the country that simply screams for roadside shopping. No drive in the country is complete, particularly in the spring and autumn, without bringing home some eggs or a jar of jam or some apple cider or bags of produce. I recall days in the Bay Area when a drive down from San Francisco to Castro, uh, no relation, to buy baby artichokes was an incomparable delight. In Southern California, about the only way you can buy fresh, tree-ripened oranges is at a roadside stand in the Riverside area. In New England, there are as many roadside produce stands as there are antique shops, and both are highly spurious. I think of that great American legend, stop to eat where the truck drivers eat. That's hardly a guarantee of quality. Just because dear Mrs. Jones whips up apple butter from the windfalls in her orchard and sells it at a roadside stand doesn't mean that it's good apple butter. I once bought three dozen, count them, three dozen eggs at a roadside stand. They came in their customary styrofoam container. When I decanted them into the fridge that evening, I discovered, imprinted on the bottom of the carton, a legend that indicated they were packed by the local egg purveyor that supplied my local supermarket. Several experiences of this nature, which included questionable luck with honey, sorghum molasses, orange marmalade, and other concoctions, have led me to one rule of produce. Buy what is fresh, what you can see as being quality, and don't make any assumptions. The purchases, chances are, will be good. Otherwise, the trustworthy labels in your supermarket are your most reliable bet. Two, all that fresh air and sense of escape that accompanies a day in the country addles the brain. You buy out of a sense of pastoral insanity. Further, the market madness takes over and you buy too much. This is Michael A. Davenport. Want to share a bushel of apples with me? Let's see, there are blackberries and raspberries, black and red. But, but what are all those others? Loganberries, dewberries, youngberries, boysenberries. <laughs> this is the shameless chef. I've traced the genealogy of the above, so this installment of the program is simply the berries. I really don't think it means a thing when you call a berry by its right family name. Sure, there's a big difference between blackberries and raspberries. Red raspberries are one of the singular delights offered to us any and all summers, and I have been known to threaten to kill for red raspberries. 
But there are a lot of other berries that bear our consideration. So let me trace their genealogy for you. You might want to dazzle someone out of their wits with your erudition when it comes to berries. Sure. Uh, first, the celebrated Loganberry. It was named, as you might expect, after the man who first hybridized it, one Judge J.H. Logan of Santa Cruz, California. He crossed wild blackberries and red raspberries and went down in culinary history. Loganberries are best eaten fresh, are made into compote or sauce. You see, half of their parentage is red raspberries, and they tend to cook up and become mushy when made into jams or jellies. In season, loganberries are a joy. Then there's the youngberry, which is a cross of the loganberry with the dewberry. Everybody seems to have gotten into the berry act and put his name to his masterpiece, but my favorite in this agricultural game of musical berries is the boysenberry. Invented, as I'm sure you might have figured out by now, a man named Boyson. It's a cross between the Loganberry, which became Old Hat after a while, and the Black Raspberry. I like to think of the Boysenberry as the Knott's Berry, for in Buena Vista, California, there once was a berry patch that sold Boysenberries. The farmer's name was Knott, K-N-O-T-T. What with jams and jellies and such, it became Knott's Berry Farm, and they began to add wagons and, and local color and began to ship their products around the world. And today they have an empire that rivals any theme park dynasty. All because of poor Mr. Boyson and his berry cross-fertilization. Michael A. Davenport here. And that's the end of the story. Did you know that most of the world had never tasted avocado before the end of WW2? And yet we're, we've got avocados in this hemisphere ooh, since the times of the Incan pyramids. This is the shameless chef. If you think the avocado is merely something for a salad or a dip, you're misled. I'm going to talk about avocados, and you're going to assume immediately that I have been given a big green sports car by the American Avocado Association or some such co-op, but not so. I admire their promotion of their product. Oh, by the way, there is no Avocado Association. And I admire the product itself. So this is a sort of an audio fan letter to the loverly avocado. Have you ever tried avocado soups? I say soups, for there are many, like uh, avocado bisque, or avocado summer soup served cold with a dollop of sour cream. Well, that hard green thing that you encounter in your neighborhood produce market can do a lot more for your table and your appetite than be sliced into a salad or smudged into guacamole. I say that hard green thing by design. For most people, just don't treat an avocado right. So here's a note on the care and feeding. Most avocados in stores are green that is unripe. They are shipped that way, and a good thing too, for the avocado is eminently bruisable when ripe. Uh, buy one that's as soft as possible, but, but please don't punch it with your fingers. Hold it in the palms of both your hands and nudge it tenderly and take it home. Let it live on a sunny windowsill until the peel darkens to a deep forest green and it grows soft. Then eat it. Oh, save the seed for a spiffy houseplant if you feel so inclined. Oh yeah, some avocados are a deep green color, naturally almost black. So the feel in both your palms is the best test for ripeness. Now, when ripe, there's some nifty things to do with it. Uh, cut it up into stews or soups. Uh, you add the, cob the avocado at the very last minute, uh, allowing it to just barely warm. Don't cook it. In Mexico, I had hunks of avocado in simple chicken soup, and it was marvelous. 
Here's one. Put jellied consomme in one side of a bouillon cup and guacamole on the other side, and then just before you serve it, swirl the two together. Nifty. You add a little sour cream, and it's even more interesting, visually as well as palate-wise. Write me here at the station if you want more avocado tips. Uh, Michael A. Davenport here. Avocado ice cream? Why not? Stay with us for more of The Shameless Chef after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. Carmen DeVito is a professional garden designer, certified New York State landscape professional, and the founder of Garden Cult. You may also know her from HRN's home gardening videos and our series, We Dig Plants. Garden Cult is a culmination of Carmen's more than two decades of experience designing and building gardens in New York City. Carmen believes that gardens and outdoor spaces should be healthy, environmentally sustainable places that enhance the health of people, nature, and the planet. She knows how to help you maximize the space you've got, help you work with and make the most of the materials, plants, and trees that you already have, and create an outdoor place to use and enjoy for you and your family. Get started at GardenCult.com. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15 through September 30th, 2021. That's code HRN15 at GardenCult.com. We're back with The Shameless Chef. This is The Shameless Chef, Michael A. Davenport. I have no claim to fame as a food expert other than this. I don't believe that recipes are litany, that cooking is ritual. I do believe that one's attitude toward the kitchen should be mildly outrageous and, if possible, highly erudite. For example, today I'm going to tell you more about cherries than you care to know. I have an admission, I'm a cherry freak. I am addicted to cherries in many forms, as pie certainly, deep dish cobbler, as a sauce for duck or ham, cherries freshly in season to be eaten simply like peanuts. (laughs) I like cherries as they come from the tree, cooked, sauced, candied, uh, even pickled and bearing the name maraschino or maraschino, take your choice. American cherries, particularly those grown in California and the Northwest, are unquestionably the world's best. You know, the the story is told of, of an eastern fruit grower who sent some cherry trees to California and saw them a few years later and didn't recognize the fruit. They had grown so big and juicy in the West Coast soil and sun. Hey, did you think that Bing Cherry was named after Bing Crosby? Sounds like it. Bing. <laughs> no. There once were two Llewellyn brothers who were cherry growers par excellence. Henderson Llewellyn managed to bring forth a big, juicy cherry, and he named it after his Chinese houseboy, Bing. Uh, There's another of his products. It's named after a political group, uh, an historic first, if ever I heard one, the Black Republican Cherry. Oh, there's another, the Lincoln. And I wonder if one day we'll have a peanut with a famous political name. Well, at the outset, I promise to tell you more about cherries than you care to know, so let me list some of the most famous ones and encourage you to find them and try them and even grow them. Horticulturists tell me that cherry trees are hardy and grow nearly anywhere, so try these for size. Bing, Black Republican, Royal Anne, Tartarian, Lambert. 
And then there are pie cherries, canned cherries, bitter cherries, and for that matter, cherry stone clams. And this is Michael A. Davenport. I like cherries and beef consomme with red wine. But then, I'm shameless. I have a friend who can sing the entire song about Chiquita Banana. I have envied her for years. Do you know Chiquita? She's a hot little South American number created to celebrate uh, and sell the ubiquitous banana. This is The Shameless Chef. Today, just slightly bananas. That song about Chiquita Banana warns, don't put bananas in the refrigerator. <laughs> Correct. On your grocer's shelf, they present a vaguely yellow and nearly green color, but no matter. Take them home and let them ripen at room temperature in a non-sunny spot. They soften, turn bright yellow, and in fully ripe stage become speckled with brown. This is the apex of flavor. And you know what you can do with your bananas, don't you? <laughs> you eat them with cream as a fruit dish, uh, with or without cereal, depending on the time of day. You make bananas into pie, bread, puddings, ice cream. The banana is marvelous anyway, including eaten just unpeeled, <laughs> chimpanzee style. <laughs> There, there are those who would shy away from the banana when it's turned slightly brown, but do not. They're mighty flavorful. And even if unsightly, they can be pureed or squished into banana bread. Very yummy. Bananas can be sautéed. Indeed, in certain parts of the world, the plantain that belongs to the banana family is a staple vegetable. I'm a little bored with that highly touted restaurant dessert called Bananas Foster, the Stephen Foster of the dessert world. But bananas do make a superior form of crepe when sautéed, brandied, and flamed. Somewhere, sometime, you'll find yourself in a place in the world where bananas grow, and you'll have the opportunity to eat a tree-ripened banana. An unbridled delight is yours should this occur. It won't spoil you for bananas as they appear in the market, but they are truly exotic. Uh, this is The Shameless Chef, bearing the usable name of Michael A. Davenport. I wish I could remember all those words. I'm Chiquita Banana. This is The Shameless Chef. I had concluded that one of the fattiest, trendiest, probably most ridiculous kitchen gadgets I had ever encountered was a special jar for making sun tea. A special jar. Well... Recently, I came across a thingum called a ripening bowl. That's it. A ripening bowl? Whatever happened to the paper bag? Oh, yes, the brown bag can be used for a lot more things than carrying your lunch or schlepping your galoshes or, or taking out the garbage. You can actually use a brown paper bag for ripening fruit. Now, why would anyone want to ripen fruit, you might well ask. Well, consider, most of the fruits and the veggies at our grocers uh, ripe, they aren't. Otherwise, why are we always instructed to thump melons or to gently squeeze avocados or we're admonished to please don't pinch, the, you know. But, but fruits are usually picked in a green ripe state and this assures us are getting the freshest produce available. Oh, okay, I'm not going to be swept into that argument about the healthful benefits of tree-ripened fruits organically grown. If, that, if that's your bag, good on you. Uh, I rely instead on the brown bag. Now, you know about apples that are stored in barrels or bins, and, you know, one apple turning the other's bad. Well, aside from that broadly philosophical fact, fruits do emit gases as they ripen. 
Fruits nestled next to each other pass their gas, so to speak, onto each other, and thus trigger the ripening process. Green or partially green fruit, and, and some vegetables, including tomatoes, ripen better in company. The, the fruit in your fruit bowl will ripen faster and more gently than fruit alone on, on a windowsill. Now, don't put fruit in an airtight plastic bag to ripen. Use your old friend the brown bag, so that there's a free flow of air along with the emission of gases. All this ripening has to take place at room temperature, by the way, or slightly above, you know, the sunny window. Now, I hate to spoil your illusions, but the song notwithstanding, you can keep bananas in the refrigerator. The skins will turn brown and unsightly, but they'll keep better. But that is, of course, after you've ripened them in a brown bag. You know, I suspect that the, the brown bag is becoming an endangered species. You notice how many things you take home in plastic bags these days? Uh, Michael A. Davenport here, the shameless chef. For a ripe old age, let's protect brown bags. Hmm? Please subscribe to The Shameless Chef wherever you get your podcasts. The voice you heard throughout this episode was Michael Davenport, the host of The Shameless Chef, who unfortunately passed in 1985, but lived a truly vibrant life. The Shameless Chef is produced by Dylan Hoyer and me, Mike Schreiber, with podcast development and additional production by Kat Johnson. The original theme song for The Shameless Chef was composed by Chip Davis. Armin Spengen composed the theme music for this podcast. The Shameless Chef is powered by Simplecast. The Shameless Chef is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio.